Welcome to episode seven of No Guitar Is Safe. And before we get started, let's hear a cool little slide lick. Except for that that was not actually played with a slide. That was played with an SM58, a microphone. That's right. Hold on, let's hear that again. When I handed our guest this week, Mr. Jeff Pivar, an amazingly talented guitarist, when I handed him his microphone, an SM58, he immediately put it on his strings and started playing. That's because he lives and breathes music. He is a musical dude. In musician speak, we would say, Jeff Pivar is a musical mother... Well, that's a technical term. I'm not going to finish it here, but I think you know where I was going. Now, let's stop for a second and look back. I know that many of you, if not every single one of you listening has heard of Joe Satriani and knew of him before episode one of this show. What I love, I just love, is that I know that there's a good number of you who probably had not heard of Jeff Pivar until this episode. And that's great because one of my goals with this show is to get stories out there about amazing players who maybe aren't household names, who maybe haven't sold 10, 15, 20 million records like Joe Satriani. Their stories are just as valuable and just as amazing. Jeff is quite the professional. He's played with Ray Charles, Donald Fagan from Steely Dan, Bette Midler just finished an arena tour with Bette. He's played with David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Absolutely no slouch. And let me tell you how I met Jeff. It was one of those things. Maybe it's happened to you. Has this ever happened to you where you're on tour when an opening band hops on the bill for a few nights and they're just crushing and the lead guitar player in that band is just amazing, throwing down every night, dazzling. It's a good thing when that happens because... It's not about being competitive, but it kind of lights a fire under your proverbial ass, as they say, and it really gets you to kind of step up your game even more. You're like, every night, you're like, wow, that guy's throwing down. It makes me want to play as good as I can, sound as best as I possibly can. Well, the first time I really remember that happening was about 98 when I was touring with JJB featuring four original members of Jerry Garcia Band. Well, this other band hopped on some shows with us. They were called Jazz is Dead, featuring fusion musicians playing Grateful Dead songs. And wow, check this out. They had the amazing legendary drummer Billy Cobham. They had the amazing bassist from Weather Report, etc., Alfonso Johnson. They had T. Lavitz from the Dixie Dregs and Steve Morse. And they had the most ripping guitar player, Jimmy Herring. Well, flash forward now to this recent East Coast tour we did with Jefferson Starship. I was also playing with uh, Quicksilver Happy Trails featuring the great David Freiberg. Well, the opening band was the updated version of Jazz is Dead, and this time it featured Rod Morgenstein on drums from the Dregs. Again, the mighty Alfonso Johnson on bass, our own keyboard player from Jefferson Starship, Chris Smith, and a guitar player I'd heard about but never met, Jeff Pivar. Wow, he was just throwing down. You know, the first night I knew I got to get him on the podcast. And so... With the same studio rig that I set up with Joel Hoekstra, I recorded Jeff. That is two micro cubes set up in a hotel room in Delaware somewhere. The one difference is that Jeff had his tech there, Lewis Robertson, great guy. And we set up his lap steel as well and also his complete pedal board. Even though it's going through a cube, it still sounds pretty legit. And I have my little pedal board going too. So that's how I met Jeff and uh, what a great kick in the pants it has been to become homies with him now. And he's a great player. 
Do I have any Bay Area people listening, as in Bay Area, California? Guess what? Jazz is Dead featuring Jeff Pivar and the band I play with, Jefferson Starship, and also Quicksilver Happy Trails, whom I will also be sitting in with, the great David Freiberg. We are all playing Saturday in Sausalito at the Sausalito Arts Festival. So if you're around, come down and say hello. That's Saturday, September 5th. So let's fire up the copter and head over to Wilmington, Delaware, where Jeff has his cool old Telecaster in his hand with a slide. And I start off some random groove in D to start off the show. What's up, Jeff? Welcome. Man, I am happy. We're out on tour with three different bands, Jefferson Starship, Quicksilver Messenger Service that you're playing with, and Jazz is Dead, which is such a thrill for me because it's a reunion. This this band hasn't played together in over 10 years, and about 11 years ago, I started a recording project with members of the band that are not only um, here tonight, but a member who... It's, it's it's very emotional for me because uh, T. Lavitz passed away about six years ago, and I love the guy. He's a brilliant, brilliant musician, uh, true inspiration to all of us. And fortunately, we went into the studio while he was still around, and this record just came out, and it features him just so beautifully. He's, he's just a master musician. But uh, Alfonso Johnson is here on the road, and Rod Morgenstein is here on the road, and Chris Smith, who we're borrowing from your band, who's doing an amazing job, and one of the original members of The Grateful Dead, Tom Constantin. It's really great. You know, There's a, The Grateful Dead is one of those bands that kind of polarizes people a little bit. Some people, mm-hmm. some guitar snobs maybe think they might not get into the music, but those songs are amazing. And when you guys present them, I challenge anyone who loves huge music, huge riffs, three-dimensional sounds, dynamics, amazing solos, incredible melodies, to not like those tunes. They sound so good when you guys are throwing them down. Well, thank you. I, it, it was a very unique opportunity because, well, for, uh, for years I worked with David Crosby. Now, Crosby knows a lot of these San Francisco people. He was kind of hanging out, and, and it was a, a formative time in the 60s, let's say, where all these bands were out there playing. And, of course, Crosby and Phil Lesh became friends, and Jerry Garcia, they were all you know pals. And... Um, there was a time where Phil Ash was doing gigs as Phil and Friends, and Phil would bring in different uh, accomplished musicians to try these cool combinations. So Crosby went to bat for me and asked Phil to check me out, and I went out for an audition, and I got some gigs to play with, with Phil Ash, which was, of course, again, another honor. You know, I, I can't say that I was a deadhead as a kid, but I got turned on to a live record of the dead, uh, Europe 72, and I was really enamored uh, of not just the compositions, but the 
it, the, the music reeks of personality, you know? And so, yes, it's an acquired taste for certain people, and there are people who are snobs who don't get it. But then again, there are billions of people who do. And those who don't get it, what I'm saying is they will get Jazz is Dead. I'm telling you, <laughs> anyone listening, go check out Jazz is Dead. These guys are throwing down. I mean, Alfonso Johnson, how did you... Uh, hook up with him well this is so it's a great story so this is uh, an opportunity I, I get to play with Phil Esch I have to you know Phil Esch and friends and various musicians and I had to learn over 70 Grateful Dead songs for the gig we had six nights at the Beacon in New York City and Phil doesn't like repeating songs and there are kids or audience members who will come to see every show so they want to keep varying the set list I finished the tour with Phil Lesh. I get a phone call from a man named Michael Gaiman saying we have a band called jazz is dead it has alfonso johnson who's you know epic you know bass player played with weather report played with bobby and the midnights i guess as well and and different musicians uh rod morgenstein and t lavitz from one of my favorite bands ever the dregs, dregs. The, the dixie dregs originally <laughs> now i admittedly i went to a dixie dreg show and I listened to these musicians play, and I looked at my friend, and I said, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to play with musicians this great. And then, you know, 10 years later, I'm in the band with them. I get the call from Michael Gaiman saying, we have this band, Jazz is Dead. We'd like to know if you're interested in playing in the band. I said, oh, my God, these are three of my hugest heroes. Where, where do I go to audition? He goes, you don't audition. The gig is yours if you want You it. just show up. No rehearsal. Yeah, so so here was my thing, my conundrum. I had seen Steve Morris play. I don't do that. I, I can't play that fast. I don't have that kind of facility. I mean, I have my own style. So my concern was, well, these guys are used to playing with that guy. I better get on these arrangements and make him not only something that, you know, feels near and dear to me, but something I can actually play. I don't want it to be too fusion-y or difficult, let's just say. So I just, uh, when I got the phone call, I got busy creating arrangements. Uh, in other words, utilizing the essence of the Grateful Dead material with whichever songs we were working on and coming up with grooves that were different. And I often cite my influences. So I'm a huge Little Feet fan. There's uh, Sugar Magnolia, which could sound like a Little Feet tune. I mean, I kind of draw from all my essences. And, and in essence, I am a, a not a studied player. I've done my own homework. I've done, you know, I, I'm a product of everything that I love. And that's how I learned how to play. Well, so. You know what? I, I love interviewing guys like you because, honestly, I've interviewed a lot of big names like Pat Metheny and Slash and Brad Paisley. But I like kind of like interviewing the, the more unsung heroes. Now, you're definitely a hero. You have thousands of fans and everything, but it's almost a curse to be so versatile because you play with so many different genres of people and you don't different find singers. Your own niche. <laughs> you play with Ray Charles, Donald Fagan, Bette Midler, David Crosby, Phil Lesh. So you can almost disappear a little bit into all that. And then, so I get mm -hmm. to bring you guys out here, which I really mm -hmm. love, and we get to hear you. It's an honor to be here. You know, I, I ended up quitting. I don't recommend this to any of the students, but I ended up quitting high school because I knew that music was my path. And I was playing in clubs at, starting at the age 15. And I was playing with guys who were three, four, or five years older than me. Uh, fortunately, I picked up the guitar very early. I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and, and I played air guitar for about a year or two and then decided to actually get a real guitar in my hand. So I was starting to play around the age 10. And uh, so when you have, you know, 40 years or so or more, 
it really helps give you a leg up in regards to, I mean, I, I feel so thankful that I knew at that age, this is my path. And I left school because I had work to do. And all the bands that I've played in, these are my college courses. I never stopped going to school. I just created my own school. Oh, yeah. There's many places to get a higher education. <laughs> totally. Now, I definitely want to hear how you evolve your style. But, I, but just since we were just talking about the dead and stuff, show us maybe a couple of cool licks that you guys play that people might be surprised by about, you know. Well, I, I would love to show you a lick that I kind of uh, created, let's say. Um, you know, there's something really beautiful about taking a piece of music and what I like to call tipping the hat to the original co composition. So um, there's a song uh, that the dead do and that is on our brand new Jazz is Dead record called Grateful Jazz. Um, that is, it, the song is Jack Straw. And it, it comes, uh, it, I have this, well, let me just show you what I did to it. So I gave it a, a different rhythm. I added, um, there's one of my favorite chords in the world is in this uh, instance where I'm, I'm playing in the key of E, but I'm utilizing the major third of the F sharp. I believe some people call that sharp 11, or uh, there's a lot of different musical terms that I actually know in my mind and in my musicality, but I don't really know the titles. I never studied the Phrygian modes or any of these kinds of things. It's something that I, just like when you have a conversation with someone, you learn words and you understand words that you could use to convey uh, an idea. And so I look at music that way. And I almost kind of like that I, I'm not so um, filled with information, that it comes from a natural place. And as I've developed as a musician, I try to think less. I try to allow the music to play me. And someone said that to me at a very young age. I had a friend, his name is Michael Ruff. Michael Ruff has written songs for Bonnie Raitt, and he's a brilliant, brilliant musician. And he said to me, Jeff, I see you trying so hard. You know, you don't have to try so hard. You could just accept that you have the gift. I like to look at it that if you kind of clear yourself or you get in that space, that you become a conduit, you become the vessel for the music to fill you. And so that's been my, uh, kind of my credo uh, when I start thinking too much, uh, because we all take a lot of pride in what we do and we want to play the best we can and we, there's someone in the audience you want to press, blah, blah, blah. And then I just try to free myself from that and I just try to get into that zone where I don't let the music play me. I'm going to get to that place where I feel the most comfortable so I can do something that feels really pure. Now, before we go any further, we just heard a really great example, and maybe you could tell our listeners what you're holding right there. That is yeah. cool. Can I have it? Uh, you can't have it, but you can certainly look at it. Okay. Well, <laughs> this one goes to I've 11. been looking at it. <laughs> so a friend of mine was uh, working in a pawn shop outside of Boston, 
and this is probably 30 years ago, and he calls me because we're, we're pals. He said, Jeff, get in the car now. The, an instrument just came into the shop that you really need to have. Now, what this is is a 1961 Fender Esquire. Now, the original Esquire only had one pickup. Obviously, somebody had uh, done some modification and put in a neck pickup because uh, usually these are just the bridge pickup guitars. And I think they even went as far as c trying to scratch off the Esquire name, and it, it says Fender Squa. So, uh, <laughs> SQ model. Yeah, exactly. So uh, when I got this guitar, it was polyurethane like a bar top, and they had polyurethaned it without taking off the pickguard or anything. So I took everything off. I was laughing because you know the the edge of the polyurethane you know kind of fell into a into the cliff uh, into this valley where the pickguard was, and I took all that stuff down with a you know sandpaper, and then I did about ten coats of tongue oil and just hung it from the rafters of the uh, roof where I was living in the attic, you know, and and uh, I've had this thing for years now. Beautiful, the, it's like an ash body, so that looks really good at the clear finish. Yeah, the original pickup, uh, I would plug in a distortion and it would start screaming. So I, had, at that time, EMGs, I think, had just come out on the market, and uh, this is right after the invention of electricity. So uh, <laughs> it was a few years ago, but uh, I threw them in this guitar, and I just love it. You know, the, the EMGs have a really wide, full sound, and I like them a lot better. I like these tele pickups of the EMG company a lot more than the uh, Strat pickups. So anyway, I've been using this guitar for years. Um, I, this guitar and a 64 Strat have been my main guitars for you know, 30 years, something like that. Now, a second ago, you were saying that maybe you're not the most music theory nerdy that of all the guitar players out there. Mm -hmm. But then again, you just did a monster tour. I've seen all mm -hmm. the photos, mm -hmm. these huge arenas yeah. with Bette Midler, one of the yeah. most popular singers on planet Earth. And I assume there were some pretty elaborate charts and a mm -hmm. pretty heavy-duty MD on that gig. Mm -hmm. Weren't you doing some reading? And <laughs> of course. Uh, well, you know, there's there's various types of reading. And um, fortunately, my ear is so fast that if I if I have a minute with the music, I can play it. You know, so it's one thing if you are hired to do a TV date or something like that, and they throw a chart of all kinds of notation in front of you. Uh, unfortunately, that isn't my strength. But as a musician who will not only do the work to come prepared, because, I mean, I was born to do this. And it is a part of the reason why I am alive, to play with great musicians, to be of service to great music. That's one of the reasons why I get excited out of to get out of bed every day. And so any day that I get a chance to be of service to, you know, this type of, of uh, existence, I just feel like it's a really great day. So a, a dear friend of mine who was touring with Ray Charles when I was in the band, and his name is Morris Pleasure. Now, Morris is a star-studded, you know, resume from Ray Charles and George Duke and Janet Jackson, and Earth, Wind & Fire for 12 years, but then he was in uh, Michael Jackson's This Is It band, and it was supposed to be in on tour with Michael Jackson playing keyboards for yeah, two him. years. Yeah, he's one of my dearest friends in the world, and we happened to run into each other earlier on in the year when I was on tour with a singer named Mark Cohn, and I got into New York, and Morris was there, and we call, you know, he called me, he said, listen, I've got a exciting news for you. Uh, I think I might have this gig with Bette Midler, and if I get it, I'm going to 
put your name in the hat. So one thing happened and uh, one thing led to another. I got the phone call. So and, and, and to answer your question, there's all different types of roles that are uh, needed in, in a band like that. And fortunately, there were two guitar players on that gig. The other guitar player being an amazing musician named Tariq Akoni. And Tariq is one of you know my dear pals. And we've played together before. We have such tremendous respect for each other. And he is a wonderful reader. So I would like to think when you put a team together, you put a team together of all these incredible strengths. And some people do this well and some people do that well and hopefully most of us do a lot of them well but Tarek is a great reader and I was kind of hoping that if I got into Bet's band and hearing that there was a possibility of a second guitar player that I would have a teammate I would have someone if a chart of incredible notation on the spot happened I would hey Tarek check this out man. Those, some of those charts must have been come on like seven pages long or something they did and I I would actually rewrite them uh, to something that I would be able to decipher and read in one page. Uh, we, we took uh, Sibelius, and the, both Tariq and I would go, okay, all right, here's an 11-page chart. I mean, one of the things that we were doing anyway is use, utilizing an iPad, and there's a couple different apps that you can use. One is Fourscore, the other one is Onsong, and you can create charts, and there it is, you know, kind of attached to your mic stand instead of this huge music stand, which is unsightly and uh, clumsy. You know, the other thing that's so wonderful about iPad is all your charts are saved. So God forbid the thing goes down, all the stuff is there. There's been times... I, I know you too. You could check Facebook in between songs up there with Ben. I, mm-hmm. know, it. I yeah. know what you I know what you're doing. Yeah, there's been times I've been in gigs, you know, with my charts in a, in a binder and I get on the road and I'm an hour down the road and it's like, uh-oh, I left my charts at the club turning around, you know, because that's the only book. You have them in your iPad, you have them saved, bam, you can throw it throw it right in another one. Now, sh- can you show me maybe one of your interesting or more interesting memorable guitar parts that you played on that tour? You know, anything. It, yeah, Just give sure. us a taste. You know, it's very interesting because there's certain pieces that really stick out for me. And then, you know, a, a lot of the stuff, it's like, it's v- being very supportive, you know, it's, it's yeah. being, it, the role is very su- supportive. I'm often asked to be a kick-ass lead guitar player and in this band it really wasn't that which I really loved I really enjoyed it and so I one of my favorite tunes you know she's got this kind of uh, bluesy gospel uh, song stay with me and it, it actually reminds me of something you might hear um, uh, you know old stacks R&B vocalists sing and, and so the chorus went like something like this And so on. Um, you know, I had a chance to play with Ray Charles for a bunch of years. And one of the things about Ray Charles, um, you know, he, here's another guy who is such a varied performer, has so many varied styles. I had a lot of charts to read, a lot of big band charts to read. This was one of the most important 
schooling experiences for me because I had all these big man charts with chords that were not just G7, but it, like G7 flat nine sharp 13. Now, at that time, I was a young guy and I figured, hmm, well, this G7 works and there's all these horns playing these other notes. So I don't really need to play those at this point. But the, as I started learning the material, I'd hear the note that the saxophone was playing and then I'd kind of count up the scale. It's like, oh, that's the flat nine. And oh, the trumpet's playing the, you know. And so I started learning these chords from hearing the extensions that the horn players were playing. Hence, going to school with Ray Charles to learn how to read these charts and, and decipher these chords. It was just a fantastic opportunity. Fortunately for me, Ray Charles loved the blues, and that was where I came from. And I learned early on I could get Mr. Charles to squiggle and scream in delight with the right blues note or blues phrasing. And I'd basically be out to get him every night. It's kind of like going to the skeet shoot at, at the, you know, the, the uh, amusement park, and I'd throw out a note. And, ah, didn't get him. And I'd throw out another note and he'd go, oh, you nasty boy. I mean, it was like Grasshopper and the Master. And talk about a litmus paper, a litmus test to learn how, all right, how can I be the most soulful mofo that I can? If I can move that man, I must be doing something right. And so I'd play, you know, B.B. King-ish, bluesy things, kind of like this. And it would seem like the phrases that I played with the most amount of space and the least amount of notes would get the man squiggling in his chair. And what an epiphany for a young guitar player. Holy moly, I'm able to move that man. He'd turn around, you know, you nasty boy. <laughs> Show me some more of that. Maybe I could play a 12-bar sure. bar booze or something yeah. behind you and take one of these solos. Right. Pretend that Ray is still here in this room. Oh, here. I, I do every day, man. Every day I do. Thank you. 
nasty boy. You, that was nasty, man. That was sweet. I got to make sure the shit's recording. That was really cool. All right, let's try one now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, Ray Charles. Wow, I've obviously one of the most soulful cats ever to drop some vinyl. But uh, I also heard he's a pretty tough band leader. Like, I know a drummer who got lit up by him in front of his family. His family was at the gig, his wife and stuff, and then... I don't think Ray was happy with something he was playing. Did you ever have any experiences yeah. like that with Ray? Well, yes, yes, of course I have. And, and you know, that is the hardest chair because the drummer has to watch Ray Charles's body. Ray Charles will create different tempos in the same song. So um, he likes to be able to have the music be malleable and he likes to be able to bend the time. And so the drummer's job is to watch Ray's feet and body because he sways from side to side so it is ray time it is he is the metronome he is the music you follow him and it's a great study for those of us who are uh, oh let's say sticklers oh once you start the beat it has to stay at the same tempo well no it doesn't and in fact you're working with um you know uh, someone that you are supporting you do what they need you to do otherwise you take a hike or play with someone else who just likes to keep in straight time so the drummer's job is the toughest and, you know, uh, from night to night, depending on how the sound is hitting him, there were nights uh, where I would play a certain volume. It'd be great. And then there were nights where he'd turn around, turn down that goddamn guitar. It's like, whoa. You know? <laughs> oh. I thought he was like digging what I was doing, you know. So there have been times when, you know, uh, it was just not the right Does that throw you when you get yelled at by the band leader on stage? You, you, you know, you. Does your next solo affected by that? Are you still yeah, thinking about it? Yeah, not be? But, you know look, we're human beings. We get spit out into the world, you know, just from, from birth. And, uh, you know, you got to be able to be resilient and, uh, you know, roll with the punches. Man, I can only imagine how much you learned playing with him. Now, back to bed for a second. Mm -hmm. What was that tour like? You guys had, that was like an arena tour. It must have been pretty elaborate staging and such, huh? You know, I've, I've never been on a tour that was that elaborate. Well, first of all, we had an incredible band morris pleasure was the band leader morris is a uh, multi-instrumentalist but he's an, an amazing keyboard player and there was another keyboard player named daryl smith a, a lot of the musicians were from the atlanta area where morris lives and a lot of the musicians morris handpicked because he's bringing in people not only that he greatly respects but he, he felt it was the best band that he could possibly put together it was kind of a fantasy band so sonny emery on drums who those of you who might be familiar with, I mean, the guy is a, you know, there's, when you get to that level, it's really, is he the best drummer in the world? I mean, there's so many great drummers. I mean, Rod Morgenstein is one of the best drummers in the world, you know, so anyway, so Sonny Emery on drums, Sam Sims on bass, um, Daryl Morris and I were, and, and Tariq were kind of the rhythm section guys. We had a percussionist named Taku Hirano. Uh, who has played with all kinds of people. And there were five younger horn players, uh, all from the L.A. area. You know, to have this band of, of these musicians who could turn on a dime. There were times Bette Midler, you know, we have all these horn charts and they're all written out, and Bette Midler would be like, hey, let's try this in B-flat instead of B. And they, they would transpose on the fly. I mean, the, the kind of musicians that could do anything at any point in time. And fortunately... 
there was one spot during the tour where we had a Saturday night off and we were staying in New York. And I have some friends back east that I go do concerts for, you know, numerous times a year. And the guy who was the booking agent happened to be looking at my website and called me and said, hey, we have a Saturday night off. We had a cancellation. You want to bring Beth's band up? And on our night off, I rented a van and we went up there and kicked butt and we did a whole night of music. Uh, we were kind of putting songs together during sound checks. Hey, let's do that one. Let's do that Earth, Wind and Fire song that you guys have played for years because half the band, you know, knew and played with Earth, Wind and Fire. And we finished this night of music up up in Hartford, Connecticut at the uh, Infinity Hall. And the guy who books the place, he came up to me with his mouth open afterwards and he said, this was the best night of music we've ever had here. So, I mean, you get great musicians together and all you need is a dollar and a dream. That's right. That's a great room too, the Infinity uh, beautiful wood building. Yes. Let's play some Earth, Wind, and Fire for a second. What would you, you like to play? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> let's see. If you want. No, I, I love I, that shit. The oh. funk. Are you kidding me? All right, well, let's figure one out. Did you play, like, Shining Star or something? Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. Are you using the Wawa and the auto filter? You know, it's kind of fun when you have, uh, I, I like to look at it as different colors of the spectrum. You, you're painting with the guitar. And that's one of the things that I admittedly am so um, thrilled about what the some of the possibilities with the guitar are. And yes, I kind of just decided to try, wow, what would this sound like together? You know, there's times when it's a, a conscious decision and it's time. there's times when you're just kind of trying things to see what will happen with the instrument because it, it actually creates a different instrument when you're utilizing effects um, in, in a way of broadening the uh, palette of the guitar as an instrument. You're painting, uh, sonically painting. That's how I look at it. That's a great box of paintbrushes and paints right there. So I'm talking about your pedal board, of sure. course. Sure. Yeah, Anyone listening, come to the uh, No Guitar Safe Facebook page, and I'll, you'll see photos of it for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. I, you know, this auto filter by Ibanez was recommended me recommended to me by uh, one of my guitar player friends, Scott Morawski, who, who tours uh, with his own band, um, Max Creek, and uh, has been working with... Um, 
the bass player from uh, Fish and uh, in, in his band. But anyway, uh, Scott told me this is the best sounding one versus the Mutron, which is probably hard to find and very expensive. Right. What, what year is that one? Well, again, I, I bought this on eBay, and you know they're not very easy to find, but it's the Ibanez Auto... Uh, auto filter and it's an older piece it's kind of like those old tube screamers it's got to be like 70s or something right yeah i would think so yes yeah yeah so i have uh next to that my one of my original effects pedals i ever bought which is the old script mxr phase 90 and now the newer ones do not sound like the older ones. did you buy that brand new uh, w- I probably did, and yeah. it and it sat in my drawer for years because I bought the Phase 100, and well, that's ten more, isn't it? Yeah. So, so and then I realized the Phase 90 was just so much cooler. You know, we did a uh, our cover story and guitar player on like the hundred best tones of all time, mm-hmm. and I chose like best compressed Strat sound, mm. Jamie West Orham from the Fix. Mm-hmm. You know that great stuff. Nice. So I call so I called him up about it to see how did you get that tone? And he's like, Oh well it was actually an Ibanez strat copy and uh, you know, compressor and an MXR stereo chorus that I bought brand new in like nineteen seventy nine or eighty. Wow. He's like, People come up to me nowadays and they see it on my pedal board and they go, Where did you get that vintage MXR chorus? <laughs> and I and he says, I tell them that thing's not vintage, I'm vintage. That's it. <laughs> On top of the curve. Right. So, um, yeah, that's a really wonderful pedal board. We probably can't get into all of it, but I do love your little AMT Wah, which is smaller than a Boss pedal. Yes. Wah Wah pedal. I got this new uh, new uh, Dunlop Wah that's the same size, which is I'm cute. I'm coveting your, your Dunlop Wah. You know, the thing that's so nice, um, well, and, and a reality for a touring guitar player, those of us who are doing that and realize you have to keep your stuff under a certain weight, otherwise you're going to be charged up the yin-yang. I mean, some guys bring it on as a carry-on, and that's even smarter. But, you know, I admittedly have designed dozens of pedal boards before tours deciding, okay, I want to have this pedal, I want to be able to have that pedal. This is a brand new uh, pedal board for me, and I actually designed it while I was out on tour with Bette Midler in my hotel room thinking, all right, well, I, I want to get this Nova system because it has access to all these different effects that I like to have. You know, I've, I've been spoiled in the past where I'm touring like with Crosby, Stills & Nash and I, I saw Mr. Bradshaw and he designed this amazing rig that included his uh, multi-effects uh, control board where at the touch of a button you could change a MIDI rack mount piece along with any effect that you want in its own uh, effects send and turn this on and turn that on. You do some pre-production and you'd have everything ready so the second sound you want has just the right delay and the right you know, uh, effect pedal. It's yeah, great no, when no ha- tap dancing. Right. And it's great when you have a, a you know, a, a semi truck that you can load this huge thing into. Well, you know, some of these tours are, don't have those kinds of budgets. And we put together pedal boards that, well, this pedal board fits into a rolling Samsonite piece of luggage. And I put, you know, foam around it. So this way it's easy to move in an airport. It rolls very easily and uh, it's under 50 pounds. So, Hence, we experiment with different combinations of things, and that is kind of what it is. And there's a couple pedals on here made by Exotic. I'm a huge fan of theirs. They've Their two pedals, the RC Booster and the AC Booster, have really been the essence of the gain structure of of what i've been doing for years and to me it's kind of like you know you have as long as i have a clean amp that sounds really nice and and clear and i love tubes and i love fender amps so with that and these pedals i'm able to really get any type of 
uh, ballsy sound or clean sound or crunchy sound and that with a little compression and I've used different compressors over the year years uh, they also have this EP booster which really fattens up the sound so you know I like to think of guitar as a paintbrush and you're painting the sonic spectrum and however you can um, I love the saying your only limitation is your imagination. And so after listening to all these great guitar players, Hendrix and Beck and Page and Larry Carlton and Robin Ford, listening to the tones that they do. And in fact, Larry Carlton and Robin Ford were a huge influence on me hearing them play and record with singer-songwriters, which I've done, and utilizing a volume pedal. And as soon as I heard that sound, I bought a volume pedal. And now all of a sudden, I have dynamics involved in my sound and I don't have to take my hands off the guitar or touch the volume knob. All these dynamics are available by my foot so I can not only bring my levels down or, ch or change the dynamics to my phrasings but I can also utilize a delay pedal and bring in sounds that sound like strings and cellos and it's just really exciting to be a guitar player now uh, with the advent of all these beautiful effects and you just use your ears and your musicality to make these sounds be what your fantasy is, what your imagination is. Yeah, you are definitely ride that volume pedal in a very uh, expressive way. Thanks. Another thing I like about your playing is you do a lot of slide, including mm -hmm. playing lap steel, which you have here today in oh, my yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. in my uh, hotel room studio here at the where are we? Double Tree, Double Tree, Wilmington, Delaware. We have uh, Jeff's great tech, Lewis Robertson, in the house. You know, I, I've done so many gigs where you're kind of humping your own stuff, and then there's gigs where you're fortunate enough to have a budget where you can bring in an expert and Lewis not only is an amazing guitar player and has been a, an amazing guitar player and and uh you know for years but you know to have someone who is not only so adept so talented in so many ways but just such a nice guy I feel almost like well what can I do for you Lewis I mean you're helping me so much anyway it's just right. so great to have you here I yeah. love that, man. Lewis had his birthday the other night on the gig, oh, and you guys awesome. got him a cake, you know? We did. We did. My birthday was a week ago at a gig in Minnesota. I didn't get shit from the band. They just kind of were like, hey, it's his birthday tonight, everybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you must really love him. Oh, we do. We do. Well, they got me a cake the last couple of years, but well, they're slacking. Know, and, and, and admittedly, you know, the older you get, you take stock of what you have. You don't take things for granted. You know, really, every day is a gift. Every day that we have an opportunity to do something that we love to do. I mean, we're so blessed. Word. Yeah, so lap steel. So I started playing lap steel a number of years ago. I acquire them. There's a company called Oahu that um, makes these cool um, lap steels that have these amazing pickups in them. And in fact, from my understanding, Ry Cooter often takes the pickups out of the Oahu lap steels and put the, puts them in his Stratocaster in the bridge position. They have this huge girthy sound. And uh, well, the lap steel... Uh, unto itself is is a study and um you know as opposed to pedal steel where you can change the tuning uh with pedals the lap steel you basically decide on different tunings to use and i actually do have a couple double neck lap steels that i've brought out on tour so i could have access to to a couple different tunings at any time which is really fun there's there are ways to bend strings almost like a pedal steel that uh, on a lap steel that was shown to me by um, a, a guy named Stacy Phillips and I've seen a few people do it. You actually take the string behind the bar and pull it towards you and it, it creates this kind of effect. 
So, you know, basically I'm just pulling the second string towards me with my second finger while I'm holding the bar. And, uh, you know, again, it's like, well, what are the possibilities with this thing? Well, let's just see what we can do. So when you add a little distortion to these, these Oahu pickups, you know, the clean sound is nice and rich. And then when you add a little distortion to it, it these things get pretty gnarly. That's sweet. <laughs> so it's so much fun. You know, it, it, it crosses territories from, you know, old blues, you know, guys throwing their guitar into some little, you know, Fender amp that has barely any wattage and turning it up to 12. And uh, it's just really fun to have access to these different tools. On uh, the new Jazz is Dead record, we have a song, Truckin', which is kind of a... Uh, a favorite uh, Grateful Dead song, and we kind of do a uh, double shuffle, I believe it's called. I can't play it like a, a Rod Morgenstein does on the, on the record. But anyway, we're just having some fun utilizing the inherent possibilities of the instrument along with adding a little bit of inspiration and fantasy to create something, you know, that is a little... What tune is that? Like an open... D, E, or something? Yeah, this is an open E, so from the low to high, E, B, E, G sharp, B, E. How do you do your passing car noises when trucks are going with it? Yeah, yeah. So I'm utilizing my uh, volume pedal. <laughs> I love it. Those strings are about a mile off the fingerboard. Yes, yeah, that's, the... yes they are. So you can you can do lots of uh, crazy shit yes. with it. I, I also, you know, to create rhythm um, with it, I often use my the heel of my hand, like for a boogie rhythm. So I'm basically, right. uh, you know, playing the strings and then just muting them. Uh, like a guitar player would, but it's a different kind of thing going on. You know, it's Let's a play a little jam. Is there some kind okay, of standard sure. or something I could play behind you while you sure. uh, take a solo on that thing? Sure. What about uh, Highway, uh, you know, the Jeff Beck song? Highway Jam, Freeway Jam. Thank you. 
you're the king of the guitar faces too, man. Like yeah. you, 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 yeah. you could be like 50 rows back and you're like going, wow, yeah. You know, I'm got to perform. Everything I do, man. You know, it's like you just kind of go and wherever whatever's going to happen it's like it's like you're a participant and a voyeur at the same time it's like wow it's pretty cool oh that sucks but that's all right i'm going to find something else that's cooler <laughs> that's what keeps us going right <laughs> so uh people might not realize but yeah playing in like a band like phil and friends mm -hmm. those are the coolest that's the most dream crowd any guitar player mm -hmm. could ever have mm -hmm. you could take a 10 minute solo and then Keep going, right. and they'll still love it. Oh, it's it's amazing. I, I'm just so thrilled that this whole jam band thing has become so important to the culture. Um, you know, there's those bands that just want to recreate their record, and you know, you're hired to do the tour to recreate what they did 50 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago and play the parts, and that's beautiful, you know? But there are people who complain, you know, when they go see a band like, Oh, let's just say the Eagles. I mean, God, the guys are so great. I understand that. They want to play the solos from the record. And they want to sound just like the record, and that's beautiful. But I love, personally, music that you create every time you are in the moment. And you're so you're composing, you're improvising, you're channeling, you're allowing the music to be your master, if you will. And you uh, go in with the intention of creating something as pure as you possibly can with the moment and it can go anywhere and you play off the other musicians so somebody will play something and then it totally changes where you were going to go because you're reacting just like a conversation and uh so the whole jam band phenomena the fact that it's so celebrated uh, it opens up an entirely different musical possibility musical realm when you're a performer and playing with accomplished musicians who will influence you and so it's this uh this i love the saying the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and it's so true when you put all these flavors together it's like a a fantastic dish a bouillabaisse all the flavors interact with the other flavors and creates something that is unique because of all these things combining cool hey let's show them that lick to slipknot i want to i want to okay. show people how this goes right. this okay. is interesting i don't think a lot of people realize what they composed on this right. song jerry and the boys wonder who wrote that i guess it was Gar garcia maybe some probably a piano player involved in that one so admittedly i I, I really fell in love with a, a bunch of different musicians, guitar players, who use their fingers a lot of times more than their guitar picks. One guy, besides Jeff Beck, who is, you know, the master, uh, there's a guitar player named Jimmy Messina. And uh, when I was younger, I listened to a band called Poco and Loggins and Messina. And Jimmy would play, instead of using a pick with his right hand, he would play with his fingers a lot. And there's just this gorgeous tonality that happens when you um, forego the pick. Um, and anyway, so on certain phrases that I feel like I might be a little more articulate uh, than using a pick, because I'm not a flat picker. I'm not a guy who just learned how to play 30-second notes with, with their pick. So I sometimes forego the pick, or it'll either get thrown on the floor or popped in my mouth while I'm using my fingers. So on a line like this, I find that I, I'm much more articulate with uh, using my fingers than the pick. And, and this is uh, the lick for Slipknot. <laughs> Yeah, it's a tongue twister. 
That's a tongue twister, man. That's pretty good for like pre-coffee break. Or, yeah, you know, that's well, awesome. You know, it, it is what it is. Uh, you know, like uh, like I had mentioned, I'm not like a Steve Morris kind of guy. I I like to play less notes with more feeling, but I'm challenged every day of my life, and I love being challenged, and I love to, you know, I get placed in these um, ensembles where, you know, these guys they're so accomplished so they make me play over my head they make me play things that i would never even consider possible and what a fortunate thing to be placed in where you know your ass is being hand to you handed to you nightly hey man you're inspiring me every night like having you on the gig i'm like shit trying to play as best you know (laughs) throw down as hard as i can that's what we do for each other and the same thing happens when i hear you play i'm like oh my god this guy is fucking incredible well, that's very generous. No, well, it's the reality. I mean, you're you're a master of your craft, and you know there are guys who play a lot of notes, but there's guys like you that you're making music. You know, you're you're a composer. You you're singing with the instrument, and there's a difference. And uh, look, it's like there's as many uh, critics and there's as many uh, people who. Um, decipher art you know as there are listeners and uh players and so there's something that happens for me when i hear someone of your uh, abilities you know it's not just the notes it's not just the work that's been done it's 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 moving me you're you're playing something that is uh deep and it's and it's um it's just one of the most wonderful, profound things about music because it's a communication, you know? And so everyone's essence is getting rolled up into this little paper airplane that you send out out to the world from the years that you've you know, put into getting to a place where you can communicate with your instrument, you can communicate through your instrument with your passion and your feelings and what you ate for breakfast and you had an argument with your girlfriend and all that stuff. It just goes into the notes of the guitar and they fly out and they go to listeners who are taking in this information and taking a a unique feeling from that. So I just love getting an opportunity not only to express what I'm feeling, to be inspired by other musicians, to, um, you know, encapsulate uh, the essence of the song and be of service to the other musicians on stage and be of service to the people who take time out of their busy day to come in and be healed through music. And it's just such a therapy for me. It's really saved me in my life through trials and tribulations and family problems and whatever. Um, so it's a lot more than just playing the guitar for me. It's a, it's a way of life. It's a purpose. And I'm uh, constantly challenged. I'm constantly excited to have another opportunity to get up at bat and hit it over the fence. Well said. Yeah, I'm with you on that, man. I love, uh, I love that you just do it full time. You know, For me, it's like I get so pulled in different directions, like working for a guitar player and stuff, which is a, a parallel passion. But it cuts mightily into my playing time. But you are living it every day and you know i also want to talk to you about some of the other great players i mean there's too many to really get into but tell me about the you know donald fagan yeah from steely dan you did some uh yeah series of shows with him this is you know look to market yourself as a musician it's a very uh slippery slope and there's a combination of things that happen just naturally through people uh trumpeting your name you know and recommending you to other musicians, and then there's creating opportunities. So I'm living in New York City. I know that Donald Fagan is playing the Lone Star with what was called um, the Rock and Soul Review. I had read numerous articles that Donald Fagan was a huge fan of Ray Charles, and in fact, he almost 
you know, looks like him, you know, with the glasses and the way he moves. So I played with Ray Charles. and You I did, are a crafty mofo. I see. Oh, yeah. No. I, uh, I created an opportunity to play with Ray Charles because, um, you know, that, that's a story unto itself. But playing with Donald Fagan, I knew he was going to be there. I took a VHS copy this is before you know dvds back right after the invention of electricity and uh i took a vhs uh copy of a song that is on youtube actually if you type in ray charles and jeff pivar you'll see a couple of them uh i brought this uh copy of of me playing with ray charles to donald fagan during his sound check i just walked into the place and i said hey donald my name is jeff pivar big fan of your work hey i played guitar with ray charles for a number of years i want to leave this tape with you because i'd love to play music with you sometime bam okay, now which out. were these two songs that people could look up on youtube so well if you type in jeff pivar p-e-v-a-r and ray charles there's a couple different songs that come up there's uh one i've got news for you which is an old blues piece and that was recorded in uh, I think in uh, Scandinavia or some festival that we were playing in. And then there's another piece that's part of a PBS documentary on Ray Charles's life. And it's a blues tune called All I Want to Do. The, the, the really full length of the title is All I Want to Do is Lay Around and Love on You. I learned early on, you know, uh, that I could uh, move Mr. Charles with with the blues inflections of, uh, you know, kind of Albert King, B.B. King direction, you know, of playing. But yes, to create opportunities as a musician, as uh, learning how to market yourself, that's a whole other side. And it really helps to be a gregarious guy, a nice guy. You talk to people, you... Uh, you know, you, you need to present yourself, at least my understanding and my experience has been learning how to present yourself in a respectful, not in someone's face way. And, um, you know, I've been very fortunate because I've gone after things that I really wanted to see if they could happen. And I've been able to meet people and, and get you know, my work out there now with the invention of internet and websites that makes it uh, much more easy. Crowded? Oh, sorry. Yeah, crowded. <laughs> it makes it much more easy for us to, uh, you know, get what we do out to the world. Uh, but, um, you know, I was able to create an opportunity to work with Ray Charles. I had uh, a Friday night off. I had heard he was going to be playing. And I had also heard that a guitar player had been fired and he was going down to he was playing in New Haven with a, with a sub, and I went in and uh, went to the gig early and talked my way into uh, the theater and talked to the band leader, told him I was interested in the job. And I, he said, look, we're doing two sets tonight. Uh, why don't you watch the first set? I'll talk to you during the break. I watched the first set. I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if I could do this because I'm not really a reader because they're all reading charts. And then I had a conversation with myself. Well, Jeff, why would you not go for this until you're convinced you can't do it maybe you can do it maybe the charts that they have are, are chord charts and you can maybe there's not a lot of notation so anyway the guy comes up to me after the first set and goes what do you think and i said yeah i would love to audition he goes do you have a tape i go no but i'll be right back i was in new haven connecticut a friend of mine had given me the keys to his recording studio in hartford i had some tapes there i drove about 90 miles an hour back to hartford grabbed uh, a cassette tape put a few of the mixes that I had of me playing the most bluesy gospel music that I had recorded to date. I drive back 95 miles an hour, round the curve. They're getting on the bus. I hand the guy the cassette. The next day, wow. I get the call for the audition. 
I played for Mr. Charles. I got the gig. Well done. Well played. Well, you know, if you want something, you learn how to go after it without being annoying. You know, it's the combination of tenacity and, and uh, you know, you'd figure out how you how you can do this. You know, is this possible for me to get a tape to someone? Or, you know, there's so many ways to, uh, basically, you, you have to be your own agent if you don't have an agent now didn't you mention how you got hired by phil lesh that's a big that's a big gig phil and friends it was an honor i mean you know he's had musicians like john schofield and i you know it's it helps they've said well it's all in who you know and in this case it really was helpful that i was playing with david crosby for years and crosby was a huge fan of my work he at one point said I was the best guitar player he had ever played with, but I, he probably says that about every guitar player he plays with. But anyway, I, I, I love David, and he's really um, said some amazing things and given me these amazing opportunities to play with him and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And he had talked to Phil Ash, you know, and said, hey, man, you should check, check out Jeff Pivar, you know. And I got an audition, and I did, I don't know, about 20 shows with Phil in 2000. Yeah, fun stuff. Yeah. What was Phil like to work with? Oh, he, you know, here's another guy who's... I mean, he's uh, one of the more more celebrated members of the Grateful Dead when he's going solo. People, for some reason, just love that bass player. <laughs> love yeah, Phil. well, you know, the thing that's beautiful about Phil is he's a nonconformist. You know, he's not a bass player bass player. He's a musician bass player. He doesn't play bass like a bass player. In fact, he doesn't play bass like any bass player. He's his own stylist. And so it's very interesting how he'll use bass lines. Sometimes he'll play the bottom. Sometimes he'll play, you know, in the middle. It's just very unique. And one of the things that was the most challenging for me in this band, he wanted everyone to solo at the same time. He didn't want a solo to crown out above the others he wanted all the flavors to intermingle almost like new orleans you know music where all the horn players would play at the same time and it was a little challenging for me because there's time i'm a big fan of dynamics and i don't necessarily enjoy that type of cacophony constantly once in a while it's wonderful but it's like if too much of anything is too much and and it's not like i don't respect him greatly and i'm so honored that he asked me to be in the band but there's times when I like, kind of like if you're sitting at a table in a conversation that not everyone is talking at the same time. So you can actually hear something profound. And, and I'm a big fan of space. I'm a big fan of the notes that you don't play are just as important as the ones that you do. So that was a challenge for me. And I ended up playing very different uh, in my style because there's times that I don't want to be sounding like I'm crowding the other guitar player or the other key, the keyboard player. I don't want to be in the same range. So there's times I became a lower kind of mid-rangey cellist and would do things that I wouldn't normally do, as well as the fact in that music, it's very easy to lose the one because the way that they're playing, it's more so pulse instead of bars. You know, it goes into this kind of pulse. And at first, it would really freak me out. It's like, uh-oh, I'm losing where one is. And then I realized, you know, it's really cool if my one might be his three and the other guy's seven or whatever. And what ends up happening is this web, this, you know, embroidery of musical texture and rhythm. And then eventually it all comes out to where it has to come together. Yeah, so. it's, like, it's definitely a wait for it thing. You wait for it for a while and then finally, it's like 
you're looking at one of those 3D pictures, you finally see the picture emerge from all the... Exactly. And one of the true joys of me getting a chance to play with Jazz is Dead is we have this freedom with the music. We have you know, the chord structure, and then it can go anywhere. And so Alfonso Johnson will play something totally different, or we'll go... He'll end up playing uh, a lick from the song in a totally different key. And then we all listen to each other and something is created just from that moment of inspirations that'll turn us into an entirely different road and then we'll morph it at some point to where we think it's supposed to go. So that, not that I don't love playing with Bette Midler, that, not that I don't love playing with singer-songwriters who want to recreate their recordings from 40 years ago or 20 years ago. My favorite kind of music is creation of the moment and it can go anywhere at any time and that's just a celebration so well very cool i was thinking uh i know that our vans are getting ready yep. to leave the hotel yep. um yeah i have to go <laughs> let's touch on you have a solo album yep and tell me this is your first solo album yep and tell me how the songs came about and then maybe we can do a song kind of inspired by oh, what nice. you did sure so i got asked to supply music for a documentary a PBS documentary on the Oregon Caves National Monument, which is in Cave Junction, Oregon. I'm living in Southern Oregon now in a town called Talent, Oregon. And uh, so this is about an hour and 10 minutes away from me. So how it normally works, the uh, production is done. They send the uh, video to the composer. The composer scores to the appropriate places in the video and blah, blah, blah. I agreed to this uh, task at hand. And then my friend who produced this video, Greg Frederick, Greg said, hey, we got a phone call from the national parks. They will allow us to go in and record in the caves themselves. And at that very moment, kind of like the Animal House movie where the angel and the devil is on the guy's shoulder, the angel said to me, Jeff, this is an amazing opportunity. Go to the caves. Don't prepare anything. You're going to receive something by being there. You're going to, uh, th there's going to be an evocative uh, intention uh, by going to the caves and bringing your guitar. Things are going to happen there that you would never preconceive with ideas that, oh, maybe I'll play this or maybe I'll play that. So I went in with a clean slate and I brought two instruments, a an acoustic guitar, six-string acoustic, and an eight-string mando cello. And I went in one song after the other with no ideas what I was going to do, and 12 songs came out, 12 pieces. And I was thinking more cinematic. I wanted to give them different uh, palettes to choose from. So something exciting and joyful and something mystical and something bluesy and something Celtic-y. And it wasn't like I was going, okay, this is what's going to happen now. But I just had an idea. All right, I'm going to give them a lot of things to choose from. So the 12 pieces, uh, eight of them were chosen for this PBS documentary. And shortly thereafter, I got contacted by the National Park saying, this music is beautiful. Would you consider putting it out as a CD? Now I've wanted to put out a Jeff Pivar CD forever. It's been something that has gnawed away at me. And part of the problem for me has been, I'm such an eclectic musician. What music do I choose to try to encapsulate who the heck I think I am? Well, unbeknownst to me, these 12 songs that I was creating on the fly in the caves ended up being the rhythm tracks for my first record. So after getting this request to put this out as a CD, those 12 pieces came back to my studio and I started embroidering each song because they were acoustic pieces. They really weren't meant to stand on their own versus being a 
oh, a soundtrack for this this caves thing. It was you know kind of a feeling and a, and a groove. And so I started adding various instruments that I play and kind of play. And uh, being a producer, bring, being a Pro Tools operator, I brought in instruments like tabla and dumbek and mandolin and banjo and accordion and harmonica and all these various things. Uh, someone made me a fretless acoustic guitar, which sat on my wall for years because it's like, well, what am I going to do with that thing? And that thing became the main solo instrument of the record. So I en- ended up taking each song and adding, embroidering these uh, sonic textures and and colors to each track to kind of bolster and support these thematic ideas I came up with in the caves. And then I started adding a few special guests to add to the textural uh, palette of the record. I had a a flautist come in and a violinist and a percussionist and, you know, uh, a cellist come in. And then I got a recording to John Anderson from Yes, who I met about a year or so prior to that, who saw me play with a woman named Ricky Lee Jones. And he came up to me after the show and gave me his card. He said, I love the way you play. I would love to collaborate. So, you know, two, let's say a year and a half later, on this whim of making this record, and I decided to email this track to John Anderson. And he was very inspired by it and he added vocals to it and i'm so thrilled to have this first record called from the core that's uh, available which is this uh it was an assignment it was an assignment to come up with music for a caves documentary and it ended up being my very first album that i am so excited about because it's unique you know there's so many guitar player records that seem very similar and you know, they'll show what they can play, and there's either bluesy or rocky or whatever. This is all acoustic, and it uh, did do a number of the things that I wanted, that, that I envisioned my first record to be. It would be a unique piece. It wouldn't sound like a lot of the other types of records that are out there, and that it would also show a certain amount of diversity of the musical um, embroidery of, you know, what I do and what runs through me. So I'm very excited that this thing came to light. I'm very excited that the, uh, the amount of music that was going to end up on this record uh, was totally improvised. It, it wasn't concocted. It wasn't like, all right, I'm going to do one of these songs and one of those songs and one of these uh, versus this stuff just happened. And then I embroidered it uh, over a little bit of time. And so that's out. You can find it on my website, pevar.com, P-E-V-A-R.com. And now with this Jazz is Dead tour, we have this beautiful record, uh, Grateful Jazz, that features just su- such incredible musicians from Jazz is Dead and some guest musicians, uh, Jerry Goodman from Mahavishnu Orchestra and Howard Levy and uh, Luis Conte and Bill Evans, the saxophone player. And so I'm really happy right now. There were v- many years that I really didn't have very much of my own work recorded and uh, after CPR with Crosby and his son and records that I co-produced uh, and co-wrote with them, finally there's some Jeff Pivar records out in the world. There's Yeah, all of a sudden, there they are. Congratulations. I think Thank it's a, yeah, another, you're a hired gun, you, you're a sharpshooter, you get hired to do the hits, take people out. No, no, but you, yeah, so you finally, after all that, you've uh, managed to release two things, so... But anyway, now I'm getting a little discombobulated because lobby calls in yeah. 20 minutes. Yeah. But yes, let's pretend for a second and let's take this out. I want to thank you, first of all, for oh, doing this. Very cool. Let's maybe pretend this is a cave and, and do a spontaneous cave jam and okay. we'll fade like out it. on that. Oh, easy. 
Jeff Pivar, after all those years of being a super sideman, he suddenly has two albums out. It's hard to do when you're always in demand, getting work, being hired for your sharpshooting hitman skills. Of course, those two albums are his Jazz is Dead album, Grateful Jazz, and his first official solo album called From the Core, recorded in those caves. I really hope that he inspires you to let the music flow through you and also to play those silences as heavily as you play the actual notes because they're just as important, right? Love that. Remember, just pretend that Ray Charles is right there listening intently and closely to every note you play. Actually, that's a little bit of pressure knowing how he might react. But wow, what a great person to have in your head watching you play. Kudos to Jeff for that. Thanks again to Zoom for the H6 recorder. And thanks again to my friends over at Amps and Axes podcast. They certainly seem to love this podcast and I love theirs, so it's very cool. There's always room for guitar podcasts. The Facebook page has been a lot of fun. No Guitar is Safe on Facebook. Find it. Say hello. Tell me what your favorite moment so far has been of all the episodes you've heard. This is Jude Gold signing off. And remember, if you're doing something amazing on that guitar, if you put an amazing life into your guitar, well, you're not safe. We're going to find you. We're going to put that guitar in your hands and make you tell us about your life and play for us. As always, no matter who you are, take it from Joe Saturani's old music teacher. Keep it alive until you're 95. 